separate accounting is huge. And I'm shocked at how, not only how many authors don't know about that, but how many agents will let that pass without even mentioning to their authors that it's an issue. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Oh, I've been demoted from your good friend Steve Campbell <laughs> to just Steve Campbell. No! Oh, the, oh, the <laughs> sorrow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. I'm devastated, but I'm going to try and, and move on. This show is sponsored by you guys, the listeners who support the show by going to my good friend Taylor Stevens' <laughs> Patreon account and supporting her through her Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. So you guys are the ones that make this happen. If you are among those joining me and supporting Taylor, we both thank you very much for what you do. And if you haven't done that yet, we would encourage you to check it out. So Taylor, we have been holding off on chit-chat for a while because we've had three straight Hack the Craft episodes, and you told me a hilarious story about something that happened at one of your children's school. So do you want to share that with the listeners? Yeah. I, it actually happened at home, but it had to do with school. And okay. So what, what it is is like with, with my background, um, I have nothing from my childhood. We didn't keep stuff. We were constantly on the move, very limited amount of stuff you could carry with you. I have so few mementos, nothing from my childhood, really. And so with my kids, I've kind of become a little bit of a hoarder. And the, and the way that I figure it is if they want to get rid of it when they're older, that's their choice. But at least they have something from their childhood that they can, you know, look back to. And, you know, when you're 25 and you're looking back at something that you did when you're five, it's like, it's adorable, right? And I have got nothing of that for myself, so I've been a little overboard in doing it for my kids. And, and I can, I, let me just say that I'm 61, and I still have the box of things that my mom kept for me, and I look through it from time to time, and it's 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 kind of adorable, it's kind of horrifying, but it's great to have. So your kids See? will really appreciate it many years from now and for years to come. And if they want to burn it all, that's their prerogative, but at least it's in their hands and it's their choice. So, but I but I'm also very busy. And I don't have time to do this on a regular basis. So what will happen is like at the end of a school year, for example, instead of throwing out all their notebooks or whatever, I'll just put them in a pile and I'll be like, OK, one of these days I'm going to get to that. I'll pull out the few things that I think are are quality, you know, like the essays and those types of things and then put them in a box and whatever. So. Um, several weeks ago, I got so disgusted with the size of this pile that I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, right? So I start going through this pile of stuff. And there's stuff from like sixth grade, fifth grade. My kids are in high school now. So that gives you an idea of how long it's been since I've done this. And as I'm pulling out all these different folders, I happen upon something from English class. And they were uh, teaching material from the classroom in which they were giving the kids um, guidance on how to structure narrative. Well, this is right up my alley, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think that they were doing this possibly for more like memoir style writing. But the idea behind memoir writing is the same. It's, it's narrative. You're telling a story and, and you write it in much the same way that you would fiction. 
So I'm flipping, I pull out these pages and I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. This looks interesting. Now, granted, this is probably the closest I've ever gotten to a formal creative <laughs> writing class, right? The very first page, words other than said. And I went, no, horrified. This is what they're teaching my children. This is how you avoid using the word said multiple times. And so now I'm like, okay, I got to see what else is in here. And I start flipping through these pages. And there's some really good stuff in here that I'm like, ooh, that, that's, that's cool. Power words and, you know, dialogue style sheets and expressive sound words. And then it gets to this thing called analyzing a student model. And it's showing the kids how their rubrics are going to be calculated. And it's based off of some, I guess, piece, an actual piece that someone written. And it starts off dialogue. Remember to respect the ocean. And the rubric says, begins with dialogue to draw the readers in. And I went, no! <laughs> That's a disembodied voice! <laughs> and I'm like reading through this thing, looking at the rubric and everything. And then it gets to this point where it says, the narrative stays focused on the rescue. There are no unnecessary details but the whole thing is using it has like i could cut it down in half because of all the unnecessary words from out of nowhere a man was swimming towards us i could see i could see he had white hair and he was wearing glasses he reached out to save me first we fought our way through the steep waves and i'm like oh lord no wonder no wonder! <laughs> so that was my experience, and I thought it was hilarious, and I was like, somebody's got to hear about this, so it's you guys. Uh, so anyway, that's the chit-chat. And uh, w for the show today, we are going to be talking about intellectual property rights. And we may segment this into a couple of different areas, but the reason for the show is Taylor has this new book coming out, eventually. And it's, <laughs> yeah. going, it's going through the process, but part of the process, where most of the process is the publication process that she's involved in deeply now, but there are also agents out there talking to movie people about uh, buying the rights for this book, and I thought this would be an interesting time to talk about intellectual property rights, and you have some experience with that. I do. I think before, like, we, we've kind of touched on the process of how some of this stuff works here and there over the years. Gosh, we could say years now, Steve. We can. You know, I don't know that we've ever really delved into what exactly intellectual property rights are and why they matter. And I think we should, like, back up and go to that first before we move forward again and talk about specifically the process of you know, selling these different rights, whether it be movies or uh, books in foreign languages or what have you. So the, the thing about intellectual property is it's, it's something that you create, right? It's something that comes from your mind. So it can be all kinds of different things. It can be writing, it can be painting, it can be music, it can be designs, anything that you physically, tangibly produce, it cannot be ideas but something that you've actually executed a creation on. Once you've executed that creation, it is yours wholly and completely, exclusively. You are the only one who truly has a right to do or use it in any way which you want to that's legal. Th those are your rights. 
to that property. Let me break in here and, and interrupt your train of thought and to just ask a very basic question, because I think a lot of people are confused about this. Um, you know, when you talk about finishing the work, um, and I don't remember your exact term, I mean, that can be just like writing a first draft and sending it to someone to review. You have, you have written that, and you have, that's intellectual property that you have written, and you have rights to that stuff. Yes. And sometimes defending those rights can be very expensive, but if you can prove that that was yours, you were the first to execute it and prove that somebody um, copied your ideas enough that it then it becomes plagiarism and copyright infringement and all of that type of thing, which is a whole other area because it's incredibly expensive and lawyers and whatever. But in principle, once you have created a thing in whatever state or form it's in, it's yours. Then when you give somebody else the right to use it, you are selling or giving those rights away to someone else. So the way that I kind of try and describe it to something is the thing itself is like a pie tin, right? You always, that pie tin is in your hand and the rights are the pie that's in that pie tin. So that pie tin is always yours. But what you do then is you start, you can dish out the pie that's in it to other people. You can give it away. You can sell it. You can temporarily give somebody the right to it. So it's like saying, here's somebody, I'm going to give you a quarter of this pie. So once you give them that pie, it's theirs, unless there's some arrangement that they have to give it back to you at a certain point. But the pie tin is still yours, and all the rest of the pie that's in that pie tin is yours. Now, once somebody has that pie that you've given to them, it's theirs. And it's almost like it develops its own new little pie tin, like now it's on a plate or something. And that plate is in their hand. And they can then take those that pie and divide it up into smaller slices and hand that out or sell it to other people. But the plate is theirs always, unless they sell the whole plate to somebody else, unless you sell the whole pie tin to somebody else. So whatever part of the pie gets sliced off and given to somebody else, that's theirs. Now, you don't have that anymore, but you still have the tin and everything else because you've sold the rights to that thing. So when you do a book contract, for example, that book contract is going to try and take a huge portion of that pie. And you're going to, your agent is going to try and keep back as much of that pie as possible because those rights are valuable. They don't always seem valuable, but that pie can be sliced and diced in so many different ways. And as long as there's somebody who wants the pie, and that's a, a problem in creative fields is that there's so much content out there that it tends to get devalued. But you don't know if you're going to have that one pie that now everybody wants. And if nobody wants it, you've got this pie, it's worthless. It's like, yeah, and you don't really think very much of just giving it away because it doesn't mean anything. But if all of a sudden it becomes valuable, that's when you're going to be wishing you had it and it held on to it. So a, a book contract is a huge slice of that pie. And usually in book contracts, 
they will take things like um, foreign rights or world rights, or those are all different slivers of, of that pie because it can be broken down into so many different ways. They'll also try and take things that have absolutely nothing to do with books, like performance rights, film rights, and people who don't understand the value of this intellectual property give it away thinking, well, that's what I've got to do to be able to get my book published. And if, if there's ever a chance of a movie getting made from your book and you have given away those rights or sold them to the publisher in that book contract, they're not yours anymore. The publisher gets to go make the, the deal with the movie in the film companies, not you. And your contract will probably have some kind of a split, like, you know, we get 50%, you get 50% or something. But that's a whole lot different than if you had 100% of that part of the pie. Then you're in a completely different position and you're helpless. You just have to Whatever they do, they do. It's their pie now. So there are some parts of the intellectual property that you really want to fight to keep from going into a publishing contract. But there are some parts that once they go into a contract, they're going to get divided down. And that is going to be, you know, maybe like large print editions, serialized things or whatever. So that's sort of an overview of what intellectual property is and and how it functions in a very simplistic sense. And with that framework in mind, we can then go, all right, so how does it work in terms of a movie or in terms of getting your books translated into other languages? Because it's all going to be based around that concept of what who owns the rights. Okay, and let's take the pie analogy a little bit further, but in a, in a slightly different direction here, because there are going to be people out there listening that are like, I don't care. I just want to sell my book. And so whether they're indie authors who just want to sell their book or they are traditionally published and all they want to do is get a contract and they don't care about all this other stuff because their book and their rights really don't have any value um, beyond what someone is willing to pay them for it. But if you think a, about a pie and – you bake this pie and you, you share it with some friends and the friends say, this is incredible. This is the best pie I've ever had. So then you go to the county fair and you win some awards there. And then all of a sudden, everybody wants your pie and you've, you've sold 100,000 copies of this pie. You would be really happy that you didn't sell the recipe to someone for $1.75 uh, before you shared it with your friends. So exactly. So it, it, it is important, even though you don't see the value, you may not see the value of it up front. Yes. And that's why and I'm speaking a little bit uh, as I, I don't know what I'm talking about when I say this. And, I, and I'm not going to name any names or throw anything out. But there are places that some professional aid, like traditional agents, will not submit their author's work to, even though. They could generally get a lot of money for it at that location, and it's because they consider those contracts to be rights grabs. And their agents are fiduciaries, which means that they have to put their client's interest utmost and above their own, and they are not looking out for their client's best interest if they submit a contract that is going to take away something that they feel their, their client should not be giving up as per industry standards. So if they encounter a non-negotiable contract with rights grabs terms in it, and they know 
that they're screwing their client over by having their name on, on that contract, they just won't sell it there. Uh, even if that means they lose the money themselves and they'll be like, you can get somebody else to do it, but I'm not doing it because I don't want that on my conscience. Hmm. So that, that exists. Okay. And, and that's one of the benefits of having a well-informed agent who is, is, is used to dealing with publishing companies, not just a couple, but dozens, hundreds. Because they know what is industry standard. They know what hills you can die to plant your flag and which ones are worth fighting for and which ones are worth walking away from. They don't have unrealistic expectations of I'm going to go and I'm going to, you're going to keep your audio rights. You're going to keep this. You're going to keep that. They know if you want a contract with one of these particular publishers, this is sort of non-negotiable. This is going to go with it. But all this other stuff, if somebody's asking you for these things, run. Because they know what the standard is, what, and they, they know what they've been able to get for some clients from this publisher, where the publishers have been willing to bend for something that they really wanted, and they'll keep pushing that envelope to try and get as much as they can for their clients. Okay, before we get into the specifics of any particular right, what are the biggies? Obviously, film is one of the biggies. You mentioned foreign rights before. Are there others? You mentioned large print, and that would never have occurred to me. Um, well, audio obviously is right. huge right now. Ebook versus print, where that's non—that's absolutely non-negotiable for a big publishing contract, unless you are an indie who already made it huge as an indie, and but your books have only been available in ebook or very limited of like print on demand. Mm-hmm. Then a publisher might be willing to accept a print-only contract because they're taking a market that hasn't yet been introduced to that work. So in publishing, specifically, the the rights that you're looking at going into that are territories like world and in what languages. So is it domestic or world? Is it English only or is it all foreign languages? Um, those Those are the biggest ones that you hit in... A publishing contract. And then outside of publishing, film is pretty much the biggest one. But then there are smaller things like graphic novels and um, plays, performance rights, and live reproductions, and those types of things, which are rarer to encounter, but they do exist. Um, Sometimes people want to do abridgments or um, even things like fan fan-based, uh, what do they call fan it? Fan fiction. Yeah, it's like fan fiction that's based off, of, spun off of the characters and stuff. All of that can be affected by which rights you've already signed off and which ones you've kept on, held back on. Okay, and we're already running a little bit longer than I would have thought with this, so I think we'll delve into some of the details of these in the next episode. But before we do, you just, not just, but within the last year signed a new contract. And as a part of that, there are all of these different components to the contract, and there are some that authors who haven't been through this process before might be more focused on than they should be. Uh, If you were advising someone who was going through this for the first time, 
What would you advise them? Is, is there a particular component that you would advise them to focus on? Would it be the advanced size? Would it be um, really digging into the rights? And, and would you give up some advanced money to have more rights, things like that? Yes, but it's so situational. It's kind of like talking about taxes, you know, without knowing that person's particular situation, what their end goal in all of this is and such. Like for me, some of the biggest things I look at in a contract are what are the loopholes that if a publisher wanted to screw me over, they could screw me over big. And one of the ones is like, when do your, how do your rights revert to you? Now in the old days, Rights reversion was when uh, something went out of print, then you got your rights back. But now with ebooks, nothing ever really goes out of print. So the terminology is such that if a certain number of copies in total haven't sold within a certain amount of time, here's the process that you go through. And it's very much stacked against the author ever getting their rights back. But at least there is that window of, hey, maybe one day you could get your rights back. And some contracts just you know that there's no way you're ever going to get your rights back. So I look at that. The other thing I would be looking at is when they talk about selling books at a discount, what is coming to you as the author in terms of royalties? Because a lot of these contracts will have a provision for remainders, and that's when they, the publisher has printed a certain number of copies, but a certain number of time has passed, and then everything they have, they just want, sort of want to get it out of their warehouse. So they'll start selling it out at cost or at clearance prices or whatever to get that moving and that you're you don't get the same royalty on that and so some language the way that it's written is at any time if the publisher reduces the price below a certain percentage you get pretty much nothing but there's no criteria as to Mm. what would trigger that type of an event so if it's a reputable publisher they're going to say under these specific conditions if you know, we will remainder, then you will get this percentage of the remainders and you'll get the first right to buy the books or or whatever. But it's real clear that, you know, they can't just on a whim reduce the price to sell it at a 60 percent loss. And now you're screwed and they get 100 percent of the profits. But there are some publishers that will do that. So that's another thing I would be looking at. The other thing would be the right split. Um, if they're going to take world and they're going to take all languages, well, it's pretty standard how much you're supposed to be getting in the in the right split where um, for English languages like England and a few others, it's sort of an 80-20 where 80 goes to the author and 20% to the publisher. And for most of the rest of the world, it's 75-25. But some publishers will like to fiddle with those numbers a little bit. And you're like, mm, I'm looking at that. Um, I'm looking at now. Are all those English language books you're talking about, or could they be translated books? No, those are translated books. Those are like you know, if they call them foreign foreign rights or subsidiary rights is what it all sort of falls down under. And I guess when we get to the next episode, we can talk about the actual how that works in practicality. Um, Some some uh, agents will really try and hold on to world rights. No, not world rights. uh, Foreign rights. World foreign. They'll, they'll let the publisher have world in English, and that includes a few other countries, you know, like the Philippines, I think, and, um, you know, maybe Australia and, and UK. But for the most part, they'll try and hold on to foreign editions, and there's a reason for that. 
it's harder and harder now uh, in the industry being the way it is to to hold those rights back. And so it's rare. Another thing that I, re- I look for is how are books accounted for? Because if it's only a one book contract, this doesn't come into play. But if it's a two book contract, you want to know, are these books counted accounted for separately or are they counted accounted for um, combined? And here's why it's really important. The each book is offered its own advance and its own time frame. So let's say it's a two-book deal, and they give you the advance for signing the the portion of the advance for signing the contract. And the first book does really, really well, but not enough to earn out both books. And the second book bombs. So if if the books are counted for jointly, that means that you have to earn out the whole contract. Mm with sales before you start to see any royalties on even that first book, which had already earned out its own particular advance. But if the books are accounted for separately, if that first book does really well and earns out, you'll start seeing royalties already before the second one um, does what it does. And if the second one bombs, they're separate. They're not tagged on together. So each one lives or dies on its own merits. And because everything in publishing works so slowly, you don't start getting royalties until the book earns out. But then there's also they only account every six months. So depending on where that falls in the accounting period, it could be eight months, 10 months before you ever see your first royalty check after it earned out, the book earned out. But if they're accounted for jointly, now tack on that you still have to get the second book published and then you've got to wait until it earns out. And then you could be looking at three, four, five years down the line before you even saw the royalty checks for what you earned on that first book. So separate accounting is huge. And I'm shocked at how, not only how many authors don't know about that, but how many agents will let that pass without even mentioning to their authors that it's an issue. Okay, and this is a great stopping point for us, and that that is a critical point and something that you really need to pay attention to if you have not been through this process before. And when we get started with the next episode, I'm going to try and remember to ask you some specifics about your first publishing deal and how long it took to get the first royalty payment. So try and remind me of that next week. Um, because I, I seem to recall from talking to you in a previous interview that it, it was not as quick as you would have expected. Okay. So, so that is it for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you guys for supporting Taylor at Patreon. And we will be back again next week. We're going to continue this. And on we go.